I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Today we welcome Janera Solomon, the executive director of the Kelly Strayhorn Theatre in Pittsburgh's historic and rapidly changing East Liberty neighborhood. Janera has been involved with arts presentation and programming in some of the most prestigious museums and theaters in the United States over the past two decades, and is passionate about the power of art to create community and amplify the voices of the unheard. Janera, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. You and I have been friends for a long time. We've watched the community change. We've watched the art world change and evolve. I want to start just by anchoring everybody in some understanding about what it is you do and how you got there. So let's start with the Kelly Strayhorn Theater. Mm-hmm. Give us a short precy on what it is. So Kelly Strayhorn Theater is a community arts organization. Actually, in 2019, it'll be celebrating 20 years since its renovation. It was a movie theater, the old Regent Theater, built in 1914 and then opened, I think, officially in 1919. But anyway, we still get lots of folks who tell stories about the first time they saw a movie there, their first date there. And then it closed, along with a lot of other old cinemas. And in 1999, a group of concerned citizens in Highland Park and in the East End wanted to save it, so they restored it with support from foundations and folks in the community. It opened in 1999 as the new Regent Theater with the idea that it would be a jazz venue. Uh, you know, as things go, it didn't work out, and within a year and a half, or maybe even less, it was closed and reopened again in 2001 with a new name, Gene Kelly, and Billy Strayhorn's name added to it with the idea that it would be a community performing arts space. The idea was, you know, if we can make this work as a rental venue, we'll consider it a success. And then in 2008, when I came, I decided and the board supported the idea of becoming a presenting venue, which meant developing our own ideas and producing programming. Let's go back to 2001. What was the significance of the Kelly Strayhorn Theater in the East Liberty neighborhood at the time that it reopened? So I think at that time, there were lots of things from a certain era that were closing. Businesses, small businesses that were starting to close. People saw Penn Avenue, you know, depending on who you were. Some people saw it as a great avenue where there were street vendors and you could hang out and it was fun. And then other people saw it as dangerous and problematic. And so KST, which had been vacant and abandoned, could be thought of as an eyesore or it could be seen as an opportunity. So for folks to say, okay, well, let's look at it as an opportunity to bring neighborhoods together. There was some intention around choosing Gene Kelly and Billy Strayhorn as two folks who have connections to the East End. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feel and I'm happy again. The story I've been told is that there was a specific idea around racial reconciliation and having Gene Kelly's name next to Billy Strayhorn's name was an intention. For East Liberty to be a a meeting place of white and black. Exactly, which it had been through its history, but, you know, people can shop on the same avenue but still not be integrated. (laughs) As neighborhoods started to change, quote, white flight, 
the demographics of East Liberty shifted and changed, not to mention the um, urban renewal plans and creating the circle. So there was a lot of damage that was done to the infrastructure of the neighborhood that further divided people racially and economically. I think folks saw an opportunity, thank goodness, to use the theater's location and artistic expression as a way to bring people to the avenue and maybe potentially bring them together. I mean, I think sometimes that sounds really lofty. You know, people are like, well, all you can do is invite folks to come. (laughs) But I think it's more than that. You can invite them to come and then facilitate ways that they can actually build relationships. Was that part of your vision when you started? For sure. That made it exciting for me. And I will say, in my first few months back, I, you know, went to introduce myself to people and, and tell them what I was doing. And uh, I had someone who lots of people know, so I have to be careful how I describe it, <laughs> this person. But I had someone say to me, Janara, this is never going to work. Pittsburgh is a divided city. You can bring great talent there that might have some potential, but the people who live in Shadyside, who go to the arts, go downtown, and they're never going to come to East Liberty to go. People in Pittsburgh are okay to work together in multiracial environments, but they don't socialize mm. multiracially. Mm. You're not going to be able to do anything about that. So, you know, I left that meeting, and I was <laughs> I was crying. I was like, oh, my Lord. And I really, you know, I'm not a big crier, but I was like, wow, okay, what did I decide to do here? Right, right. Isn't it terrible when you get graded with that sort of finality about how you can't possibly do what you have in mind? It is. And there's, a, there's of course, truth to it, right? There I mean, is. There's, that is a dynamic in this town. And yet you persisted. I'm curious, did you also have an idea that the Kelly Strayhorn could help a then-struggling neighborhood rebound? I didn't. That came later. I wasn't as clear about that. I think that started to become clear as an agenda after the Shadow Lounge closed. Seeing the struggles of some of the black business owners that were around, Jamie Wallace from Abay, Justin and Tim at Shadow, Mr. Seifu, like there are just a lot of folks who at the time, and this was probably 2011, 2012, that had great concepts, but were still having a hard time attracting attention and capital. And having some of those conversations, I started to think about, okay, well, How can we as an arts organization be more intentional about getting our audiences to support these businesses? Mm -hmm. So we started working on that and encouraging people. At that time, we had fixed ticket pricing. So we started offering discounts if you went to another business or we came up with all these ways. I thought as the least we could do, but definitely my idea was that when you came to East Liberty, you weren't only coming to the Kelly Strayhorn. You were coming to the neighborhood. So that was a shift, because I think when I first started, I was just like, I need to just get people in this theater (laughs) to see these shows, especially for artists that no one ever heard of. So that was my focus. But after being in the neighborhood, walking around, talking with people, I was like, okay, we've got some really talented, ambitious people here who are putting their own time and energy into doing things. How can we support this? I also had a moment where um, I took a trip to New York and I went to the Apollo Theater I saw, when I was on my flight, I was reading New York Times, and it said that the Roots were going to be performing at the Apollo. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to go see this. So I got off the plane, and I literally, like, went to the Apollo with, like, my bag that I had. As I was in line, this lady said to me, have you been in the Apollo before? And actually, I realized I hadn't. I said, no, actually, I haven't been inside. And she said, well, I live around the corner, and I love this place. It's like my neighborhood theater. It's where I come to hang out. And when she said that, I was like, that is exactly 
what I want someone to say about the Kelly Street Fabulous. one. I want yeah. them to think about it as their like a neighborhood bar. Yeah. This is the place where they go. As an arts organization, I think we have to do that. If, if in the long run we're trying to inspire an audience that's sophisticated, for lack of a better word, at least an audience that's courageous and down for the complicated work. East Liberty has gone through wholesale changes since the demolition of Penn Circle Towers and two other high-rise housing projects. The influx of new urban professionals has been joined by new luxury apartment houses and upscale stores and restaurants, so-called gentrification. Nowhere are the changes more stark than on Penn Avenue, where one side of the street is lined with upscale stores and the other old family businesses, many of them boarded up. Look at it before, this would used to be a business district. Half the businesses are gone. There's so many black businesses that have been pushed out of East Liberty. Eventually, there won't be any black people in this neighborhood if this continues. The same thing with the residents. The residents are being pushed out. The entire fabric of this neighborhood is changing. Let's explore just a little bit about your notion of what the role of the theater was or is in a moment like this, because mm -hmm. you're weighing into changes in the neighborhood, issues of cultural erasure, controversies around art in the neighborhood, and a lot of cultural institution managers would look at that and say, hey, that's not my job. My, my, <laughs> exactly. you know, my, my job is to fill the seats, exactly. put on some really good artistic presentations, let people have fun or let people think. Exactly. So why don't you think that? Why, why isn't this your little capsule that you can operate in worry-free about what's going on outside? I don't know. It could be because I'm a glutton for punishment. And it's like, you know, the harder the better. I didn't I got into art making and art producing because I wanted to change the world. I wanted to see a different way that people were showing up in the world. So it wasn't only because the artistic experience is beautiful. We have a mission statement that says that we're a catalyst for creative expression that brings diverse audiences together. So you can't do that simply by thinking about butts and seats. For me personally, that's the kind of work I'm inspired by. You know, when David Rousseff makes a piece about Billy Strayhorn's life and the complications of being a brilliant artist who's gay and black, that's powerful. Uh, we could just talk about the legacy of his music. Like, that would be right. enough. Right. But my hope is that by supporting that kind of work and experiencing it, it inspires those of us who are here now to think about, well, what about the current Billy Strayhorns? What about the people who are alive now having the same experience and how can we make it better? And I think art has to do that, not only keep us in the past, but give us something to do now. You actually not only believe that, but you have challenged the field <laughs> that you're a part of to believe that as well. You recently gave a speech in New York in which you were asked to give three provocations and you gave them. Uh, <laughs> one of them was that we in the arts field should measure success differently, maybe in terms of the creativity we inspire. Say a little bit more about that. It's really wonderful to hear audience members say after a show, this experience makes me feel like I want to get back in the studio or I want mm. to mm -hmm. make music or, you know, I used to write when I was in college, but I gave it up because I wanted to pursue something more practical and this inspires me. And I used to hear those comments early on and just sort of say, oh, that's really nice. But... 
I don't know. I think something shifted in the past couple of years, and maybe it's because the political climate <laughs> we're in. I think it just gives us all so much to do. We've got so much work to do around so many issues, and and we as arts people, we're we're gathering people by the thousands in our theaters. Talk about the potential for a movement building. All these people are sitting in our theaters. They're not going anywhere. Some of them are not even on their phones. They're, they're, we have their. <laughs> That's a statement about our time. <laughs> exactly. We have their full attention. What if we could inspire people to do something or make something? Like, what could that look like? A second one, another challenge that you set up was <laughs> how to connect more with the neighborhood and to be part of the community that the arts venue exists in. Why is that important? We can easily be overwhelmed by all the things we can't control and, and then talk ourselves into what I see as the basics. Even if you have a presenting entity that has a national or international reputation, what's the point of having an international reputation and you've got an increasing homeless population, some of whom are sleeping behind your concert hall? I have a problem with that. Why can't we bring the same rigor that we're bringing to putting the work on stage to having a conversation about a problem that's right in front of us? I don't know. I just It seems like a waste of our energy. More importantly, if we're going to make the case that our arts organizations are important, they've got to be more important than just for art. And I know <laughs> there are people right. who are going to say... There are people right now who are exploding. They're <laughs> right. <laughs> they're right. exploding. Like, what? Art is art's sake. It doesn't need to exist for any other reason. Okay, sure. I don't agree. I think if we call ourselves arts leaders, then we have a responsibility to show up in our communities for all the issues that are impacting our community. And we should bring our creativity and our imagination and our rigor to those conversations. Your third provocative thought was that it really matters how arts professionals show up themselves, what they bring to work and how that translates into the work that they do. What did you mean by that? There are so many arts organizations I've gone to their offices for meetings and it is uninspiring. People are complaining about being at work. Folks are actually not being treated very well. Uh, there are other environments where harassment is taking place and that's kind of part of the culture. Another environment where you could tell people really were unhappy and people would say, well, this is just how it is. And We've got to give more attention to how we are showing up with our colleagues, with our teams, with our boards, around all the things, both in terms of the positivity and how we treat each other, but also in terms of difficult issues. You know, we can't talk about have an equity mandate that we put on our website and then have a board that's not very diverse, for example. Right. <laughs> You're suggesting that happens. <laughs> I am. Yes. <laughs> it does. We're all human beings. It's not perfection. It's something I'm, I've been working on myself. Just really wanting the experiences we offer our audiences, I want that to match. I want our team members and our board members and our donors to feel the same, the same thing, the same creativity, the same inspiration, the same rigor. That's a goal. And I, I think we're going to need to do that because as a field, our work is going to get harder. Why will it get harder? There are so many uncertainties, climate change causing different migration patterns, economic issues pulling resources from one place to another, new ideas about identity and how people show up and what they expect, all the things that we thought of as safe and like, okay, we've got this, we know what this is. <laughs> 
there's just it's going to be shifting and changing. You're going to have to be quick on your feet and you're going to have to have a culture that supports being agile. And you're going to have to have people who can do it and want to do it. You've also alluded a few times here to the political context that we're operating in and the complexities of that. So if I think about your early mission to help bring people together across a racial divide, now we're operating in a time where kind of the opposite imperative is going on at the national level. And Mm -hmm. do you find it harder to have these conversations now? Is it scarier to do the sort of edgy work that you try to do through Kelly Strayhorn? Or do you view it as more important and so whatever the consequences are, you'll you'll deal with? <laughs> this is the moment. If there was ever a moment where this work mattered, it's now. It's the right moment. It's the right time for us and I think for others to have a kind of uh, multiracial agenda and not only, I mean, I'm talking about race because it impacts me like every day, <laughs> every moment of my life. But there are other things. There's gender, there's sexual orientation, there's religion, there's class, there's educational level. So, I mean, we have a lot of ways that people find to divide themselves and cause conflicts. And so as arts organizations, yeah, I think it's important that we step into those and not be afraid of them. And that, which means we have to equip ourselves, too, with information and experiences and Mm. So we're able to do it. So speaking of identity, you come from Guyana originally Mm -hmm. and came to Pittsburgh at the age of 10. Mm -hmm. So in Pittsburgh parlance, you're a newcomer. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) How has your identity as an immigrant shaped your work and have you felt differently about it in the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I think being an immigrant... It's an experience that I think everyone should have sometime in their life of moving to another place, another culture outside of your home country to see what that's like. Growing up here, I felt, maybe my sisters have a different view, but I certainly felt different. And people pointed it out, all the ways that we were different, different accents, different food, different cultures, different ways of being. But as I grew up, I sort of settled into Pittsburgh and it didn't, I didn't think about it as much. In recent times with all of the conversations around immigrants and letting people in to this country or not letting them in, I have found myself having to call out that part of my identity more often because people will say things to me that I'm offended by. I mean, they'll say things like, well, you know, we can't just have immigrants coming into our country and taking jobs and we have to protect our borders because people, drug dealers and all kinds of people are coming in. And I have folks saying this to me and I think they feel like they're saying it to an African-American maybe, so it's safe to say. So then I have to say, well, mm, I'm one of those people that's maybe, I guess, taking someone (laughs) so much job. (laughs) Now it feels even more critical and more urgent because of the conversations about immigration. And immigrants are not only coming here to take jobs. They are also coming here as people, bringing artistic and cultural expression. And we want to make sure that we support that in this community Mm. because Pittsburgh needs that. One of the expressions of the fear of the moment that we're living in is that we are seeing a ramping up of security all around the country, including at arts venues. You and I spoke about this recently, and you had an interesting take on that phenomenon and how we ought to be thinking about it, particularly for arts venues. Can you say a little bit about that? I'm not for it. I think as an arts presenter... I want to assume that people are at their best and have us all be at our best. And starting the experience 
with take off your jackets, open your bags, make sure your pockets are empty before you walk through the metal detectors. That seems counter, right, to what it is that we're here to do. Now, I know there are folks who are going to say, well, there are real concerns, and what if someone comes in with a weapon and all of that sort of thing? And I think, I don't know, it goes back to advice I got from my mother growing up about how to protect oneself. And her advice always was, well, you look danger in the eye. You don't turn away. (laughs) That's more dangerous. And so I think if we actually practiced, I don't know, a more holistic, welcoming approach to audiences, we would be looking people in the eye. We would be noticing them. We'd be noticing things. And that would be a different kind of security. And we do have one officer at KST, uh, but we engage our officers. <laughs> we talk with them. We encourage them to take a peek in the theater, see what's going on. We introduce them to the artists. You know, we offer them things to drink. They usually say no. I That's think, probably for the better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking about the advice your mom gave you yeah. and the behavior you're describing right now connects with her notion of looking danger in the eye. Why did she tell you that? Her view was she had four daughters and she didn't want us to w- move through the world being afraid. And she wanted us to feel like we could go anywhere and do anything. And the first time I remember her introducing that advice was when my sisters and I started to go out to clubs and we would go to parties late night. And she was very clear. She would say, well, people are going to try to talk to you that you don't want to talk to. People are going to try to offer you drinks that you don't want. And you want to respond in a way where you protect yourself, uh, which means with respect. So it's not, oh, you know, get away from me. It's, oh, thank you, but no thanks, I'm okay. Like that kind of response. And her point of view was you always look the person in the eye. Mm. And so I've had experiences where leaving a nightclub or even in the daytime, someone approaching me that I didn't feel comfortable with. And rather than sort of try to hurry past them, I don't know, I follow my mama's advice. I mean, Graham, we could talk for hours about this. I've had many, 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 many scary experiences where her advice to look look the person in the eye. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That that establishing that human connection. You actually told me a story about walking into a retail outlet in East Liberty, the neighborhood that, again, just to be clear, you helped revitalize through the presence of the theater, Mm -hmm. uh, for better and worse. Mm -hmm. And you walked into a retail outlet and were followed by the store manager who was worried that apparently <laughs> that you might steal something. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that. And and did you use your mom's advice in that moment? I did. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I think I said something like, I'm going to buy these things. <laughs> you, I think I just you said You just that. called it right up. Yeah, I was just like, I'm going to buy this yeah. stuff. It threw the person off. And then she said, do you want a dressing room? And I was like, no, it's okay. I know my size. Grant, this just happened to me Christmas shopping this past Christmas in Shadyside. I've been going to Shadyside since I was in high school. I went to Oakland Catholic High School. A lot of my friends were EastEnders, and we would hang out in Shadyside. And I was there. uh, I won't name the business, but I went into a business for a last-minute Christmas gift. I was bending down to get something from a shelf, and when I turned around, there was a police officer standing right behind me. And so I sort of jumped back, and I looked at him, and I said, Hi, how are you doing? And he said, Good, good. How are you? I said, Good. And... Then he turned around and he walked away. And so I kept shopping. Then it occurred to me, I'm like, wait a minute. He wasn't actually in the store, which means someone called him in the store because someone thought 
that I might be shoplifting. So I looked around and I said, okay, are there any other black people in this store? And I noticed there was one lady and she smiled at me. The cop had already left at that point. And I thought, wow, okay, come on, Pittsburgh. This is 2018. Mm -hmm. I'm born and raised, well, not born and raised there, but I've grown up here. I consider this my home. I'm shopping like everyone else. Let me have my fun. Let me have my moment. We have to pay more attention to this. People just want to live their lives. Let them do it. So when you think about your work and mm-hmm. the work of the Kelly Strayhorn, and you have this philosophy of trying to engage on these complicated social issues and on the ground in a neighborhood that is experiencing a lot of them, how do you not be pulled down by that? <laughs> You've got to stay positive. I'm lucky because I feel like we have so many amazing artists that come in and out of our space, you know, even on my worst days. As soon as someone comes in with their work, it's like, oh, wow, okay. (laughs) Now I know why I'm doing all this. So stay connected to the work, stay connected to the mission. And this I'm learning more and more is to stay connected to people who share your ambition. It's easy to find yourself in an environment where everyone's saying, no, no, we can't do this. No, we can't do that. No, that won't work. And those people, I don't spend too much time trying to change their minds. Instead, I try to make time to find the folks who say yes and spend time with them. What can Pittsburgh and its art scene learn from other places that you've experienced? You've been involved in not just cultural organizations here and not just your own cultural organization, but you've also been involved in the Museum for African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., You talked about your experience going to the Apollo. You talked about your uh, the the speaking that you're invited to do around the country. What can we learn about our arts and culture activities in Pittsburgh that's especially important right now from the rest of the world or the country? I think we can learn that there's a way to celebrate your successes and be critical and strive for more. Here, we. I think we have a scene where we need to be affirmed and reaffirmed. And it's really strange because it's both a combination of, well, what we've got in Pittsburgh is so great, we don't need to look at anyone else. (laughs) (laughs) We have that combined with a kind of always needing to be told we're good. And I can't make sense of that, but I, I think we've got an amazing history. We have amazing talent. And I think if we want to keep the best folks here, We also have to have a healthy conversation about, well, what else can we do? How else can we improve? Let's not settle in to good enough. Mm. Let's actually strive. And that's something I feel in in vibrant communities, there's attention there. Like we're good and we can be better and we want to be. So, Janera, the name of our podcast is We Can Be, and we always like to conclude by letting you finish that sentence, we can be what? We can be inspired. We can be joyful. We can be better. Perfect. Thank you. I love Janera's challenge to cultural institutions and artists that they be of the community they serve, that they show up at work in inclusive ways. It's no coincidence that she brings her full identity and heart to her work, her neighborhood, and her city. The arts can tell a story where all of us can come to recognize ourselves, where we all can come to learn about new perspectives and discover new stories. And most of all, 
find a much needed source of hope for both artists and the community as a whole. <laughs>